Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Word is Proud Media Partner of Latitude Festival. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, it's 11 o'clock in the morning uh, in The Word Lounge um, at Latitude Festival. You can probably hear some of the uh, sounds of merriment uh, starting up. Uh, a relatively blue sky. On my right, David Hepworth. Hello. Hey, David, you, they Hello. know your voice. And on our left, very excitedly, Jeff Lloyd. Hello. It's, it's, uh, it's lovely to be back. Hello, Jeff. Thank Jeff you. Lloyd. And uh, these are salubrious surroundings compared to where we were last year. We were like in a site manager's office in a porter cabin. We were actually we were. in a porter cabin. Yeah. Although our digital editor is sleeping in the porter cabin here. Is so. that right? And, and I have to say, it was the envy of all on, 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 on Saturday night. We ought to tell the story actually of Fraser's injury over the uh, over the Latitude weekend, didn't we? Because I arrived here on Friday. Uh, and he was fine. He was bouncing around. And then two hours later, he was pretty much crumpled up in a corner because he'd torn a muscle, hadn't you, Fraser? Fraser can't take part because he's over there. But he's waving. I went and, to the medical And you tent. went to the medical tent. I went to the medical tent and I said, look, um, our, our, our man is injured. Um, you know, we, we can't get him up here. Is there any way I can you know, get some advice? What to look? I said, I oh, will come down. I said, well, you can't. It's the rock, the rock Festival. You must be surely rushed off your feet. I said, all we've had so far, one bee sting. <laughs> so I thought it was fantastic. That's so very latitude. That, that, that yeah, no lost pit injuries. No, no, there's, yeah. there's just the occasional fairy with a broken wing. Yeah, well, I think it needs, <laughs> needs a bit of repairing. So they're looking forward to the download. Festival Somebody with a paper cut in the literary tent. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Absolutely. And uh, so, so Fraser was, uh, you know, a pleasant uh, diversion for him. And, and so they then, they took him and bandaged him up, didn't they? Then gave him a crutch. So for one day he had a crutch. Filled him full of codeine. And then he threw yeah, away like the crutch. He lopsided smile. Because he's a New Zealander and they're dead hard. Yeah. And now he's absolutely fine. He threw away his crutch and he rose again and walked. Yeah. There you go. I used to work with a guy in Manchester who was in a band. Do you remember the Salford Jets? Does that ring yes, any bells? Yeah, it rings a bell. So they were sort of like a pub, um, a pub rock band. John Bramwell's over there. You'll remember them. Mike Sweeney's band. Yeah. And they had one hit which was called Who You Looking At? Which was as aggressive as, as, aggressive as it sounds. Anyway, um, the, the singer Mike Sweeney. B-side was What You Want. Yeah, yeah. You and Who's on. 
me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so uh, he then went on to become a local radio personality in Manchester, and he, he was brilliant in so many ways because he had this gruff, Salford accent, and... Um, you know, he had a face only a mother could love, and uh, he, he was nothing like your stereotype of radio DJs, which, of course, all commercial radio was like back then, um, to the extent that he used to take a rifle into contract negotiations with him. He'd go in that and he'd, is say, he'd say to the MD, uh, I'm just going shooting afterwards, I hope you don't mind me, uh, me uh, leaving that there. Anyway, don't about this pay rise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, this does relate to um, Fraser in an odd way. He, he is also... a very, very thrifty man, and um, to the extent that they, they had a vending machine for drinks where I think a cup of coffee was 5p, and he would frequently come along and go, Lloydie, I've, I've only got a 50p piece and I don't want to break into it, could you lend us 5p? <laughs> it's very tight. So he took his kids to Disneyland, and one of them fell over and grazed their knee. And they, they were fine, you know, it, was, it wasn't a serious injury at all. However, he just insisted in his pugnacious way that they gave him a wheelchair, for this kid. Nothing at all to do with the fact that the kid had hurt itself, but everything to do with the fact that because when you have a wheelchair at... Uh, straight to the top yeah, of the queue. straight to the front of the queue. Oh, right. rides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that's applicable to gigs as well. It could be. Well, Fraser could, of course, be just wheeled out at the very front of Swades. Yes. yes. <laughs> with his foot up. If you were actually in full traction, you'd, you'd probably be allowed to get on stage and sing back. So, you, so you've been broadcasting from here the whole weekend. Yes, you? I have. And I wanted to uh, take umbrage at something you said recently, David, which was on Twitter. You said that there is never any good backstage gossip in a oh, okay. radio station, television station, yeah. newspaper coverage, you said there, there is never any worthwhile gossip. Before you before you prove me completely wrong, yeah. which I'm sure you will, this was based on the fact that every year the BBC's coverage of Glastonbury or whatever, they always say, and we'll be there with all the backstage gossip. They all say at the Brits, we'll be there with all the backstage gossip. And I think, there never is any backstage gossip. Well, listen to this. This uh, Okay. Ah. This, in, this is some gossip Settle which down. involves two pieces of wood. One, I would say, is probably... Six feet by three feet, the other one slightly larger. So, um, so, so yesterday, and it's people wonder what it's like backstage at festivals, and um, it's describe it. Okay, so if you imagine us into that magic world, imagine if society is broken down, (laughs) (laughs) and then, then uh, you know, from from the spare bits that are lying around, people construct it. It's it's like a refugee camp. If if society, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt. If society has broken down, which is the best bit of society to be in? The bit out here or the bit backstage? Out here, undoubtedly. I think it does vary from festival to festival, but at latitude, it's so lovely out here, no thought is really given okay. to, to back there. Um, so anyway, as we know, there's been a certain amount of rain over recent days. and Ooh, uh, barely uh, noticed. Yeah, and uh, uh, of course what follows is a certain amount of mud. And where we are, we've got a VW camper van to conduct the interviews in, and then two porter cabins for people, you know, uploading things to the internet or sheltering from the elements or whatever they're doing. And... Um, the mud was so bad back there, they, they took two measures. They, firstly, they piled a, a load of wood chip into the mud, which has created the most unholy smell to the extent yes, that yes, I've, been, um, I've been asking interview guests to, uh, to speculate on what kind of bowel movement that is, what creature <laughs> would make that kind of smell, because it's vile, it's, it's beyond cattle. It's, um, <laughs> and then, uh, 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 then the other thing, that certain makeshift bridges have been made out of these pieces of wood. There's some wood lying around, so we made a makeshift bridge to our porter cabin so people being interviewed could step over it. A couple of the tour bus drivers have done the same thing. 
So anyway, about four o'clock yesterday afternoon, I, uh, I go out to make a phone call, and there's this massive row going on. There's some kind of stagehand guy yelling in the, um, in the face of the lady who's running our porter cabin. And from what I can glean, she's taking this, she's taking this wood from somewhere, uh, and it wasn't her wood to help herself to. Well, and he is furious. He Look is out. furious about this wood. Um, he then spots that the nearest tour bus to us has done the same thing. So he goes over and starts berating, in a, in a much less gentlemanly, gentlemanly fashion, the tour driver of this bus. And he's, like, screaming at this guy, saying, this wood costs money, and he's... Anyway, um... The bus turns out to be C6 Steve's bus. Oh. He hears the commotion. He's not happy. He comes out well, and starts... C6 himself C6, yeah. getting involved. C-Stick gets involved. He comes out. He's got Shotgun? his... Shotgun? Uh, he, well, yeah, yeah. He's got his lumberjack shirt on. Yeah. Oh, that's a good But he squares start. up to this guy. Have he got any tattoos? He, he has a few tattoos. And he takes off his shirt... Oh, ...to reveal the tattoos, Give him squares the up to Give the guy, the throws a punch. I know. And the, the, the guy went away. With his tail between his legs. Fell over? No, no. um, To be honest, I didn't see the punch thrown. Uh, But, uh, you know, so so the story... It's like I've been back to the 70s. Yeah, at its mildest form, Steve, like, uh, made a fist. He made a fist. Uh, His most extreme version of the story that I've heard, the man was hospitalised. I'm not sure where the truth lies, but I imagine it's in between. By the time Mark Ellen is telling somebody else the story in ten minutes, he'll be dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 A question from the floor. Can we change the room? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Brett Anderson. <laughs> Did you pick that up? I, this is, uh, yeah, the, the suggestion was that the, the rumour needs to be changed that it's Brett Anderson killing a man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I imagine then it might get everybody in the gets in the camper van. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what for, I think only some form of martial art. You look at Brett Anderson, you don't think he's capable of throwing a punch, but maybe he knows some kind of Vulcan death sting or something. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah, Black belt. Yeah, yeah. You never know, yeah. So what have you been doing back there? Well, you've been, just interviewing, you've been interviewing a train of people? High-level celebrities, as we're now calling them, in the backstage gossip uh, yeah. argot that we're now in. Yeah, my favourite... Who have you had in the back of your uh, camper van? My f- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it came out all wrong. Can I just... Hey, here's a good one. You know when, um, uh, pre-Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant's uh, roadie used to be Noddy Holder's dad... Did you know this? That's yeah, yeah. Good. Good. yeah. But pre-Led Zeppelin, Robert was Noddy Holder's that's... dad. Noddy Holder's dad had a window cleaning round. That's also good. And uh, Robert Plant used to take girls in the back of the um, in the back of the window cleaning van with all the chamois leathers and buckets of water. <laughs> not unwillingly, so, I would imagine. <laughs> no, I'm sure not. No, <laughs> who can resist the chamois leather? Um, <laughs> so no, there's none of that. None of that chamois or otherwise going on in our van. It's, uh, it's. I mean, I was going to describe it as professional, but that would be stretching it. Uh, my favourite so far has been Paloma Faith, who, uh, because she was preserving her voice to perform on the main stage, she decided she wasn't going to speak. She decided she wasn't going to speak during the interview. So she turned up. So she turned up with a notebook. Oh, this is this is for radio. Incredible. She turns up with a notebook and uh, she she writes down her answers, and I have to read them out at the speed at which she's writing them. That is fantastic. Yeah. I think you showed the massive forbearance. About 20 minutes. So, yeah, it's, it's slow going. She's not a quick writer. She doesn't know shorthand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you saw the funny side of that. You didn't... Well, had it been anybody else, it, it, it might have been tiresome, but she's funny. I know her a little bit. She's been on a few right. times. She's, she has got a sense of humour, Paloma. We ought to add that, actually. I was talking to Stuart McConey here last night. Stuart, who's... 
here this afternoon, uh, taking part in a, in a discussion about Britpop. Mm, uh, and we're talking about difficult interviewees. We thought at some stage we ought to do a podcast just about the difficulty of interviewing people. Yes. And that Paloma Faith ought to go in there. Yeah. Because what Stuart told me was that he was rung up by somebody representing Buzz Aldrin, who was one of the three men in mm. the first moon landing. And the PR said, yes. He was yes, the second man on the yeah, moon. He was the second man on the moon. He always says how disappointed he is where he is. Absolutely. The, the, rest of the, <laughs> the second man yeah. on the moon. But not as bad as Michael <laughs> Collins, who went all the way and didn't go didn't on the moon. Didn't get anywhere yeah. the moon. Didn't get out of the bus. <laughs> That's yeah. laziness. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> <It is>. the, <laughs> Buzz Aldrin's PR said uh, he'll talk about anything, but he doesn't want to talk about the moon. Amazing. Yeah. News International this morning, we have Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who was a radio producer at LBC, the speech station in London, and they booked Patty Parfit for an interview, who is, uh, I don't know if she's ex-wife, but at the time she was Rick Parfit of Status Quo's wife. And uh, just as the interview is about to start, before the microphone goes live, she goes, uh, I'll talk about anything, but I don't want to talk about Rick or Status Quo. <laughs> super. Yeah. Absolutely super. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. So, well, I mean, festival experiences. Yes. For, I mean, We've asked everyone who's been on the podcast for first festival experience. Was the first one you went first to, festival. Or first one you were aware of. Or aware of, yeah. My first one was, do you remember the Phoenix Festival, which was just outside Stratford-upon-Avon? Oh, 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 sort of an old uh, air, air drone or something. Was yes. It was tarmac. Flat yeah, tarmac. it was, exactly. And I went there covering it for my first radio station. So my first you know, my first festival experience wasn't as a punter. It was as a young, uh, wet-behind-the-ears boy with a, a tape recorder and a microphone. And uh, I, was, I didn't know the correct procedure. I didn't know that you're supposed to ring people in advance and book these interviews. So I was just sort of wandering, wandering around. Up to, yeah, yeah. Wandering up to Guns and Roses. Yeah, and it's, it's my pleasure to say Kirsty McColl told me to piss off. Really? Yeah, yeah. And, you did know, you get that on tape? I did, yeah. yeah. So um, she, she'd just come off stage, and I was wandering around, you know, just looking for people Straight to interview. And she, well, she was sitting outside her, um, outside her dressing room with her feet in a bowl of water, which I'd never seen anybody do apart from my dad after a day on his post round. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. But she was sat there, right. trousers rolled up, <laughs> uh, bowl of hot water, and uh, I went over and said, Kirsty, would you mind having a quick word for uh, KFM Radio in Stockport? And it was just piss off, That's nothing brilliant. more. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you very much, Kirsty McCall. So and that, she was normally immensely yes, pleasant, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't have been nicer. That reminds me of your, your, your story about you going backstage at a gig as a junior hack on the record mirror trying to get a quote. Well, getting duffed up. Yeah, go on. Oh, do you want that? Oh, well, you, were actually, you were physically my, abused. I can say this. Actually, you did a similar thing to what Jeff did. Okay. Yeah. Very similar. My first ever um, uh, experience as, as a rock journalist was when I was working for the, for, the, for the record mirror. I think I was about 21 or 22. Mm. And uh, I'd been plaguing them with, you know, cop of unsolicited, you know, prose and stuff. And eventually, oh, actually, we've got a we've got a gig for you. Actually, we've got Elvis Costello, which was the hottest ticket in town. Yeah, yeah, he's no album. trouble. <laughs> Elvis Costello, I mean, why on earth are they choosing me? This is absolutely incredible. No trouble. So I get there. Said, they said you're on the guest list. On the guest list, I don't even have to pay to go to write. This is amazing. You probably thought you were going to yes. get dinner as well. Didn't I you? Thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so exciting. I get there. Of course, I'm not on the guest list. I can't get. I thought my entire career yeah. is now the battle. If I don't get into this concert, it's going to be very difficult. And eventually, I meet a guy in the queue. He turns to be Elvis Costello's brother-in-law, who's 17, who says, oh, I'll go and get Elvis. It's no problem. So he brings Elvis out. I'm really excited. You know? yeah. I'm taken to the top of the queue uh, without a wheelchair. <laughs> in there, watch the concert. So I thought, after the concert, what you do if you're a reporter, you have a notebook not unlike this one. Actually, spiral-bound. And, yeah. and I, came, I went into the dressing room and said, hello, just um, Mark Ellen, record mirror. Well, I just, uh, get a couple of, now, 
you're Steve Naive, isn't it? Keyboard player. Is that I-E or E-I, <laughs> Steve? Mr. Naive, sir. And eventually their manager came over, and I, I, to be fair, it was 1977, and I had very, very long... I looked like a very tall, very fat-faced, and enormously unattractive girl in cowboy boots with a velvet jacket <laughs> and very long hair. And he said, where are you from? I said, Ruckle Murray. He said, right, come here, mate. And he got hold of me. And he, I can say this because yeah. it's true. No and he, he picked me up so that my feet were down. <laughs> the guy called Jake Riviera. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. can be fearsome. Terrifying yes. man. Yeah. Picked me up in front of Elvis... The attractions, uh, several members of Ian Deary's blockhead, <laughs> and uh, one or two members of the rumour, and bash me against the wall repeatedly with the words, we hate the record mirror <laughs> and we hate fucking hippies in velvet jackets. <laughs> and he said, get your hair cut, and just threw me down the stairs. This is absolutely true. Wow. So I sort of dusted myself, thanks very much. So, uh, you know, it's like your Kirsten McCall thing. So, fuck, fuck off. Is it? Yeah, okay. Thanks so much. Great. I walked home, and I, I took off my velvet jacket, and I put it in a little dustbin. Uh, attached to uh, and I walked it was December and I walked all the way home just six miles oh. in a state of complete confusion this is heartbreaking I, thought, yeah, I blamed the velvet jacket the next day I had a yard of my hair cut off and, uh, <laughs> and it's, been, it's, been, it's been quite a success ever since I'd like to think so I've been there too yeah. it's such an odd moment that when you go to interview somebody and, and, and you're told you're on the guest list and you kept mm. waiting I remember once um, again it would have been about the same time be told look we've got you an interview with the wonder stuff who were you know they were front page of the melody maker and, and sounds at the time size so of a cow very excited yes. very excited the Manchester Apollo, queuing up for ages. Eventually, I managed to convince a tour manager to let me in. I'm ushered into a dressing room. It's the drummer. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that's something you must always check beforehand. Well, isn't there a famous story about somebody interviewing Tin Machine and going Germany? You remember that one and going and saying, which, which one is Mr. Bowie? That's right. So that went down extremely badly. I think one of the, one of the, the Sells brothers always pretended to be yeah, Bowie yeah, for the whole yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah. Awful. Jeff, we had. We had uh, Change the subject. Record. We had Robin Enns here yes. yesterday, yes. and uh, and he told us. Well, he started to tell us a sad story about you losing a load of records. Yeah, this this was. Now, we shall always elicit sympathy at the, in the word podcast. Yeah, anyway, I will, uh, yeah, it was it was already. heartbreaking actually. I'll I'll, um, I'll preface this story by saying I haven't had a drink for ten years. In the ten years prior to that, I was uh, uh, you couldn't have breathalysed me at any stage and uh, got <laughs> I've been disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I'd been DJing at some um, charity gig in Manchester, and they said, "Look, you come along and DJ, but we'll give you free drink." And at the time, you know, I was young and daft, and, and um, long story short, they, they were bringing me pint pots which were roughly two thirds vodka, uh, one third orange, and I was drinking them, and I just got in this hideous state, and then at the end of the evening, which I don't remember very clearly at all, I hailed a taxi, but it wasn't a real taxi, it was just a man in a Datsun who was, uh, you know, <laughs> taking his chances as they do. Uh, anyway, I wake up the next morning, oh, I say I wake up, my mum wakes me up the <laughs> next morning, I'm living in a flat in Manchester, but my mum still uh, takes the train 20 minutes from Macclesfield once a week to come and do my ironing for really? me. Yeah. She actually which, yeah, yeah. Excellent. which actually on that subject good parents yeah. you're a saint yeah. When, yeah. when I moved to London oh, at first I used I to go back that. to Manchester every I weekend I thought you said she used yeah. to come no, to no, London no, no, well, this, so I used to, I used to move to London I used to come back to Manchester every weekend and as I say my parents lived in Macclesfield so she used to wait on the platform at Macclesfield station 
and I would have with me a bin bag full of my laundry. I'd pass it out of the window to her, and then on the Sunday when I was on my way back, uh, she would be there with it all pressed. All that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that like the old mailbags? Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Your alarm exactly. goes exactly. out. Back yeah, exactly. yeah. station. And already you're getting yeah. socks yeah. So she didn't even get a peck on the cheek no, or anything. No, no, no it's just an exchange of, of laundry. Dear and occasionally God. she would come to London, take my laundry back up north, and post it to me at the radio station. So I get this huge delivery of a box of pressed laundry. So, so anyway, Re- she recorded delivery. Yeah, very yeah exactly. So, so anyway, she turned up to. Um, to, to come and help me out with my... Di- and I feel very bad about this now, but at the time I justified it by thinking, well, it's her way of keeping her hand in at parenting. You know, it's difficult to let your kids go in their early 20s. And that, that was That was how I justified it to myself. You're a saint. Yeah, exactly. So, um... So, so anyways, records. Records. yeah. So I, I got up and I was looking for where I'd put my records, yeah. and I couldn't find them anywhere. Uh, and and as I started putting two and two together, I'd got in this taxi, which wasn't a really really a taxi. Uh, I mean, it was probably a two minute journey back to my flat in central Manchester, but. By that stage, I'd probably forgotten that I had records with me in the first place. So I got out of this, this um, ostensibly taxi and and left the records in there. So how many? How many? Uh, so it would have been a box of about 250 LPs, oh. uh, a, a, a case of about 500 singles. And then the thing that breaks my heart is my best friend Chris, for my 21st birthday, he got, you know, the little... Um, as a, as a kid, you would always have those small seven-inch boxes yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. cover them in stickers or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those, and for my 21st birthday, he had filled it with our favourite oh, records. So it was like so a, a real them. compilation tape, and there was like... Uh, I remember there was... Um, s- a copy of Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, with the wavy, you know, the yeah. wavy record cover in there. There was loads of stuff um, that, that we'd just like sort of grown up living so together. Give us two or three of those favourite records. Uh, the the This Is the Day yes. was in there, yeah. which I remember hearing. And you know, we used to go to this club in Manchester called the Brick House, and they played that for us on our twenty-first birthday. Oh, um, yeah, the there, there was loads of stuff in there. I think that, like they don't know Kirsty McCall was in there. You know, some there some piss off written. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, and never. Buy my records again, <laughs> and um, yeah, the, it just went missing. So I went on the radio next day, and uh, you know, it, with it being local radio, Manchester, everybody gets on board, and and even the local, the councillor for fun, who John Bramwell over there will know, Pat Carney, who's this sort of—he nice. is—he's like this legendary figure on the councillor Manche- for councillor for fun. I'm not sure that's his official title, but you know, Manchester's council uh, is 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 notoriously at odds. With the rest of the country, right. it's been described as a loony lefty council. Right. And you know, ca- council, councillor for councillor for fun, yeah. You Which see, you have this horrible image of a sort of Ronald McDonald character with yeah. you know shoes like bananas and. Yeah, to- Tony Will. Yeah, Tony Wilson Did gave he? gave him the name, and it, it kind of stuck. And I think it's unfair to describe Manchester as a loony lefty council, uh, even though we were twinned with Leningrad in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that was um, so, so. You appealed for yeah, a... and, and uh, you know it became this thing. It was in the Manchester Evening News, but the records never turned up. And uh, the, you know there isn't a week that goes by where I don't think about those records, especially that that little box of seven inch singles. Can I ask you a question? Did you shed a tear? I did. I did. I, I wept. Did you go? Quietly in your room and cry over a load of records. You see, I think I'm. Yeah, yeah. I I'm capable. Yeah, of yeah, very capable of that. Yeah, but presumably yeah. you replace them. But even replacing them, they're not. They're not, not, the not the same. same. Not the same. They yeah. Got the yeah. So we're talking about vinyl mainly here. Yes. And kind of yeah. Things and, and that actually, that, sense of that's the um, that's that's the line at which I, you know, stopped owning vinyl. Really, I've got that wasn't my whole collection. Obviously, I've still got a few boxes and stuff in uh, my mum and dad's attic. I take it Robin told you the story about the flood 
and his records. I've he heard was, that he story. Was, Tell that story again, because that's another absolute Yeah, so Ro- Robin Ince is... Um, yeah. He does a very good John Peel impersonation, both in terms of the voice and in terms we, we of the record. We did a record. peel off. On oh, the did podcast. you really? I, I thought I had a strong chance. I, I just d- gave up. I doubt his it. John yeah, Peel yeah, yeah. is unbelievable. But also, like his record collection, he, he would listen avidly to Peel, and, and Robin had a very extensive uh, record collection, very Peel esque. And um, he, he had a, a thing where he, I think, he recently moved into a house, and he'd gone up to, maybe he'd gone up to Edinburgh for the summer or something like that, and came back, and there'd been some kind of leak. And not only have these records got wet, but they got covered in sewage, and they, you know, they, it, it was uh, beyond. You've got to really hope. love them to want to, yeah, you know, yeah. take them back, and, I mean, that, and that was that. You know, even if it's a twelve-inch field mice, yes, other, probably <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. The corn dollies. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I went to Bob Harris's house not long ago for a piece I wrote about record collecting, and, and Bob lives out in Oxfordshire, where it's very flat. Yeah. And they've got a detached house, and uh, and they've got a garage, separate garage, and um, and he, he used to keep his vinyl in the garage, huge mm. amounts of it, thousands of things going back, you know, acetates that Mark Bolan had given him, and you know, John, a, pop, a copy of uh, Forever Changes, which yeah. John Peel had given him when he, you know, when he sat on in his radio show, or yeah. whatever. And uh, and it rained very heavily one night. Oh, no. Really rained. And they were aware it was really raining. And Bob just, uh, you know, opened the bedroom curtains, looked out, and there's standing water, you know. Oh, outside. that's heartbreaking. It just gone into the garage, yeah. you know. And he just thought, oh, my God. I find it difficult it to lost. cry about relationships, <laughs> bereavement, <laughs> but I hear about records. No, children are making an exception to fill up for records. There's yeah. a brilliant bit in Dave's, uh, Dave's article where he's talking about how a lot of these records ended up uh, with his first wife, and Bob had got divorced. You mm. know, clearly not, very acrimoniously. But he still had visitation rights to his old album. <laughs> so uh, the we- uh, weekends, you know, he could take uh, yeah. uh, his old uh, yeah, love albums to, to a pizza it's express. It's an indication you know, of what a softy Bob is, actually, that when yeah. he had his... his divorced from his first wife that they'd lived together with these records yeah. and she was just attached to yeah. uh, attached to them as he was yeah. she said you can have them that's an yeah. amazing thing yeah. Yeah. and of course you know he's a better sto- human being than any of yeah. us <laughs> I guess. Did I course, I, yeah. you know the story about the Bruno Brooks lawsuit yeah, and, yeah. The, and you know how can, how can you do that to somebody can, can you tell that story briefly yeah, I don't people know, don't know well, it's an amazing Bruno, story Bruno Brooks was Bob Harris's landlord right well sort of <laughs> You may laugh now. This is a sitcom way to happen. He borrowed money. He borrowed money off Bruno Brooks in order to buy a flat. Bruno coming around for your rates bill, right? And Bruno Brooks, the market collapsed. You know, Bob lost his job. Yeah, he fell on fell on seriously really hard times. Really hard. At the meantime, in the meantime, Bruno Brooks was in the process of becoming a multi-millionaire through throwing out T-shirts in nightclubs and doing Miss Wet T-shirt competition, and which is extraordinary because when I worked briefly at Radio 1, Bruno Brooks, this is a bit unkind, but uh, yeah. for, in terms of his intellectual apparatus, was known yeah. as Bungalow Brooks because there's is nothing right? upstairs. That, but but yeah. he, he made his That's money mean, out of it. If you ever go in a petrol station or a branch of Asda, oh, and they've got their own Lloyd's radio, the Chemist. Lloyd's the Chemist, they've yeah. got their own radio station. So you'll be in Asda and you'll hear Asda FM and you'll think, who on earth is, who on earth is running How this? Bruno, Bruno Brooks. Brooks. That's <laughs> who, yeah. And he's, made, he's multi-millionaire off of it. But the, the only way he could get the money back, yeah. the only thing that Bob was perceived to have 
have of any value was his record. Yeah. And so Bob and his, and his wife were woken up one morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, by a couple of bailiffs. Awful. Who, turned out, who were apparently very helpful and said, just ring this number and, you know, you yeah. need... And he had to go to court and argue that they were the tools of his trade. Yeah, this is yeah. And that was the, that was the interesting at, argument. At that time, at, at, at BBC, I mean, it, it, it was contested, in fact, I think, in court, that, that, yeah. that radio disc jockeys did not need records as the tools of their trade because most of them, no names mentioned, yeah. would simply turn up to do their show and open up a box that had been prepared for them by a producer with a sheet of A4 between each one telling them something amusing to say about it. And then yeah. they'd piss off back to their uh, country estate. Of course, that's presents. all gone now. That's, of course, that's a different world now. Yeah, it's all computers no, we now. We don't on. even have a yeah. box don't, anymore. Don't, don't even have a DJ. Yeah. Don't have a DJ. Did I, um, did I, I tell you... Richard Skinner's voice. Did, well, did I, this, funny you say that. Did I, did I last year tell you my um, Richard Skinner story? Oh, no, no we're always in the market for that. Oh, this is... Yeah. this is. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I'm breaking a cold pal of ours, by the way, but carry on. No, 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 not at all. This paints Richard in a good light and a former colleague of mine in a particularly bad light so um i used to be in a double act with a guy called pete and um pete's a big, big music lover he's very bombastic um he's he's, he's constantly he's he's, const- he's like that northerner with a chip on his shoulder he's constantly pissed off and like everything is too much effort for him um anyway so so <laughs> richard um Richard was working at the radio station at the time, and we'd got Paul McCartney coming in for an interview. And Richard turns up with um, a fair amount of rare vinyl. So there's some, um, I think, like the, um, the the butcher cover is in there, and some some wing stuff. And he says to Pete, a big felt pen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He says to Pete, "Would you mind getting Paul to sign this stuff for me?" So Pete's like, "No problem. Yeah, just leave it with me." So it's carry bag full of stuff on the on the floor of the studio. So we interview Paul McCartney, and uh, he, he was great as ever. And then then Pete does a separate twenty minute interview with Paul um, for for a different program for some documentaries making or whatever. Um, Anyway, I, after Paul's gone, I come back in and said, oh, did you get that stuff signed for Richard? At which point Pete goes, oh, shit. And what I would do in that situation, what any right-thinking human being would do in oh, that situation, is going. say to Richard Skinner, I'm really sorry, we just got carried away and we forgot. Not Pete. Before I can stop him, he's got a black marker pen. <laughs> and he's not even making any effort to... Oh! He's not even making any effort to forge Paul McCartney's signature. Oh, he's just he's writing in block capitals. What he's doing is ruining Paul the value. McCart- exactly, oh, exactly. Double disaster. Just the worst <laughs> thing. Oh, that's, that's, that's yeah. a good excuse for you to tell your George Harrison story. Oh, well, that, George Harrison I, I, went, I, I went to interview George Harrison in uh, whenever. What did he have that record? 88, was it? He had a comeback record. It was 88. I was uh, the editor of Q magazine. And we got like, a world exclusive with George. And I was uh, unbelievably nervous because I'm an enormous uh, Beatles admirer, yeah. aren't we all? And um, I. I wanted something. It was always a good idea to have something to break the ice, you know, these things. And my wife has the Beatles autograph. Uh, when she was about, I don't know, 12 or something, she wrote to the Beatles fan club. She, well, she was rather sweet. She, she didn't have a picture or anything, but she just cut one out of New Musical Express. It still had the caption at the bottom. Times were hard, man. And she posted it to the Beatles fan club. And unbelievably, back in the post, about two weeks later, came her picture with the four Beatles yeah. autographs on it. And if you know what the Beatles autographs are, they're quite easy to identify. Yeah, yeah. Spy uh, John Lennon, the Ringo Starr's got a little star, the yeah. McCartney has a great big Y, yeah. and he uh, went through an awful uh, phase of putting a little uh, happy face in the Y. Yes, we, we, yeah. we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> so, anyways, I thought it was great. So, I took it into George Harrison. I said, um, 
is this this is fantastic my wife's got this when she was 12 and which thing he seems very very uh, cool about the whole thing he said well it could be the beatles or it could just be me yeah and i said uh, why is that this is my hilarious george it's harrison not bad. It's not uh, bad. impersonation he's welsh <laughs> and uh, i said why is it because the boys couldn't be bothered to sign it a lot of the time so i would uh, do all four of them yeah and, and so, show, so he got a piece of paper and he did all four of the beatles yeah. are absolutely perfect although i don't think that deep values it because I mean they're no, so so possibly more you, valuable well, if nowadays you'd yeah. take a picture of him doing it yeah. wouldn't you, you know, yeah. that, a lot, would, a lot were done by Neil Aspinall as well was, who could do, do all four signatures but I, I um, that was a main uh, requirement on, 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 your, on your job interview your application for, for working for the Beatles you had to be able to, be able to, to impersonate them well, well, I, I did a similar thing recently songs. I've got a friend who um whose mum was mad on the Beatles, but specifically Ringo, who, of course, doesn't sign anything anymore, anymore. because if you send something, it's got well, to be tossed. It's got to be tossed. With peace and love, yeah, it's got to be yeah. tossed. Yeah. So, um, so I've, uh, I was just saying to you before uh, that I interviewed Paul McCartney recently over these um, uh, reissues of McCartney and McCartney 2. So I took an 8x10 of Ringo and got him to sign it as Ringo. And he did the signature perfectly. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so good. Really Result. Yeah. 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 That's what happens if you spend, you know, years in hotel rooms. You have nothing yeah. to do but, yeah. but, but sign autographs. I got Bob Dylan's autograph many years ago oh, for, for Mark's wife. wife. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an indication, of, if you want yet another indication of how staggeringly awkward and contrary Bob Dylan is, yeah. that uh, I handed him the record. And he took, got a felt pen and put it in his left hand, <laughs> held, held it at the top, not, not even very like far this. end, he held it like that and wrote Bob Dylan. And he wrote it in double script, yeah. so it goes. And it's quite, it took him a long time. Yeah. It says something like, best regards to Claire, Bob Dylan. But he's done it in double script, left-handed, holding the end of the that's pen. So and is he obtuse. left-handed? No, he's no, not left-handed no, not at left-handed. all. You know, deliberately, that's just the way he does this it. Is the, this was the agonising occasion where David interviewed Bob Dylan, which is quite a big deal. Very few people have interviewed him, you know. And after five minutes, Dylan made an excuse to go out and get a glass of water or something. And in fact, actually, what he did was go out to talk to the... Do you remember the press guy from, from CBS Records? And the guy said, how's it going with David Hepburn? He says, oh, it's OK, but he keeps asking me all these questions. <laughs> like, so that's, that's a doomed interview, yes, isn't it? It was agony. I hope this hasn't been a doomed interview. This man has to go. He's got to go and work back on the radio. And it's been fantastic to see him. Thank, Thank you, you for, for coming me. along. The tremendous Jeff Lloyd. Thank, Thank you. you. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We're rolling, OK. Welcome to another... Uh, play, play, I want some incidental music, actually. Go, play some incidental music. Like jazz, jazz Just a little yeah. background for you now. Here we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So welcome to the Word Lounge on this uh, extraordinarily damp um, Saturday afternoon at Latitude Festival. The next voice you hear will be that of Kate Mossman. Hello, everyone. And on my left, the fantastic John Bramwell of I Am Clute is playing some jazz chords. Please welcome Good John Bramwell. Everyone. He's going to play the guitar later on, and we're going to record for a little bit. Uh, it's pouring with rain outside. I don't think you hear that on the podcast, but it's sheeting down. <laughs> I can just see sheeting. I can just see a sea of umbrellas going across the lake. <laughs> Typical festival weather. We're having a lovely time. And John, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure here to be here. It's it's, it's a very loungy sound. It is. It's a very swing. It's very relaxing. He's bedding down a mood. That's what he's actually doing. That's what you told me to play. I know. I'm very happy with it. I would have done Motorhead if you asked. John, you're playing later. You're playing tonight, I think. In Asia's lighting a gas, but also let me just say, it's so nice to see John Bramwell smokes. Uh, well, I didn't think he still made them menthol. Yeah, menthol JPS. Yeah. I think it's important to 
keep a certain amount of delusion in your life. So I smoke these, in, you know, in, in that belief that these don't do me any harm whatsoever. I always used to think that it's just a refreshing blast refreshing. of mint. Just some, <laughs> of the mint. some of the gaps I've got in mine, I could actually get one in there. <laughs> <laughs> then you could play the guitar at the same time. <laughs> Frank Muir always used to say that the sign of, 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 of holes in teeth is could, could you... <laughs> oh, is that a show? <laughs> Amazing. But the question is, can you eat an apple through a tennis racket? That's the old go. <laughs> anyway, no, look, so, John, you're playing at the uh, Words uh, Arena, I think, tonight. Uh, what time? We've got uh, about 25 to 7, and then I think the Bunnymen are on after and the Foles are on as well. I'm looking forward to it very much. Supporting the mighty Bunnymen. Well, this is it. I don't, I don't know if I'd say supporting, though. No, no, <laughs> sorry, not supporting, what I'm talking about. <laughs> Ludicrous gesture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you remember Matt from the old days? Is he still the, the wonderful old well, Arjun he used to be? Well, I, you know, I, I wasn't really around when they were going, but I was a fan as a kid. My sister was a big fan, and uh, I loved them from the start. That whole it informs a lot of my writing in a way. Him and uh, Aztec Camera do, and uh, in the way of like, it, it it doesn't make any sense, and then it does. Mm. And uh, but they, no, we had a, a run in with him at, in our first year. We got we we're lucky to go to Fuji Rock Festival. So pretty excited. We'd played in the afternoon and uh, you fly 24 hours, seven-hour drive, and you're pretty much on stage. And after it, we were getting completely leathered. It was very exciting and great. <laughs> and they turned up, the Bunnyman turned up, and Mac, it, it, you know, he's looking quite dazed because he had done 24-hour flight, seven-hour drive. And I'm pissed out of my mind at this point. Got hold of him. was like, call it, you mate. The nonsense, but it's not nonsense. Fantastic. And he looked, and I got hold of him, shaking him. It was awful. Afterwards, I was like, what the hell are you doing, John? <laughs> a few years later, we were playing at um, Paradiso in, in Amsterdam, and they were playing the following night, so they were around and about in town. And I was in this bar, and I was going out with this girl who used to go to Bunnyman gigs a lot, to the point that they kind of knew her. Um, not in the not in a close no, sense. No, no, it's just, <laughs> not just friends. Just get square that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> we're in this bar, and Will Sargent, the guitarist of the Bunnyman, comes in, recognises Liz. He goes, "Ah, oh, hey, Liz, yeah, yeah." So I'm stood there thinking, "God, I'm the guy who did this to him McCulloch back two years before," you know, <laughs> like a crazy fan. And uh, so, and Liz goes, "Oh, and this is John," and uh, he's looking at me. Oh, yeah, hiya. And then he he stops suddenly and stares at me, and he goes. You're that guy who freaked Ian out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm real. I'm God, I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry about that, Will. I'm so- I'm really sorry. I'm not really like that. Honestly, I'm really sorry. Because no, we fucking love that. <laughs> I love that, that Ian's psyche is so fragile. <laughs> Two, years Two years later. Two years later. <laughs> I know that's absolutely fantastic. But look, just just in terms of your your story, am I right? I think you started out as a busker. Was it a busker in? Uh... Well, no, it's such a start. I mean, when I was a kid, nine or ten, my dad lived in Wales. I used to play in pubs, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, uh, like a lot of musicians at some point or other, yeah, I was, I was busking, but uh, not not really full on. Uh, and for what, a while what in Greece... Did you, I'm fascinated by busking. What songs did you play? I played some Bunnymen. I played some... I was playing like Simon and Garfunkel and mm. uh, Bowie and... Does, does Bunnymen make as much as uh, The Sound of Silence as for a busker? Yeah, which, which was the highest earner? Yeah. Well, in Greece, uh, in Greece, uh, Killing Moon did pretty well. Really? Yeah, so you I did it in Greece, and did we in, in, in France as well? In Paris over? for a while, yeah. yeah. But it's not good in Paris. Really? Uh, anyone listening mean? thinking of going busking in Paris, don't. <laughs> Why not? It's not really I was there one day in some square, like and it was, it was about to go well, and uh, at which point I heard this massive kind of drum sound. I turned around, and a whole team of 
14, 15 year old drum majorettes turned up in full uniform busking. So uh, that was the end of that. Really. That's not really busking, is it? I mean, that's <laughs> cheating. That's the street theatre. I, 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 I wasn't really much, did much busking. It was just every now and again, obviously. Uh, you know. <laughs> to I include also. Are you a, a, I get the pre- feeling I don't want to talk about busking. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. And, and, and to, are you a presenter? Were you? I think on Granada television. It was a music show, yeah, on yeah. Granada that they had me on, yeah. Uh, which ostensibly was a music show. I interviewed Rory Gallagher. I met Rory Gallagher. Had a jam with him. It's great. So I did that, and Jason Rubello, the pianist, I met him, was playing mm. with him on the show and interviewed him, and it was going well, but the viewing figures were crap. And um, What Granada... time of day was it? Was it a morning thing? No, no it was a Friday night, 11 oh, o'clock, right. and, uh, and uh, they changed it into something just awful, <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was the end of that. Did you have to do funny skits and things like that? I didn't do any funny <laughs> skits. I think the worst thing that happened was they, they, they made a rugby player eat a load of curry, and then they put him on a spinning wheel. No. And, oh, is this like, like the word? Kind of, it sounds, <laughs> yeah, well... And, and uh, yeah, it was like bets on who, how long he was going to vomit. <laughs> you see, oh, do you remember the, the word used to have? I turned my back on television at that. <laughs> yes, at that point, you've got to have standards, haven't you? But uh, you know, actually, they, they threw me out for abu- what they called abusive behaviour. <laughs> what, what was the? Can we ask what the abusive behaviour was? To no, funny that. skits. Uh, the, 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 there was a meeting one morning, and they were taking it all very seriously. I was like, I, I can, I can, you, how can we sit here? This is shit. It's easy to do. Just do it. Wasn't that abusive, really? But anyway. <laughs> but now tell us a bit about the story of the group because you, you, uh, there was a whole a team of oh, you know, Steve Coogan, Henry Normal, and Guy Garvey, and Carolina Hearn. There was a whole uh, well, team uh, of people who were all working together at that time, or seeing each other and supporting each other's uh, ventures. I think in the, yeah, in the late eighties, I was gigging and I was um, playing on my own and. Um, the, the, you know, I do gigs with like uh, be, be on tour with people like John Cooper Clark and stuff like that, mm. and it was brilliant. Uh, but the actual music thing was—I mean, I, I did a I did a uh, support tour with the Lars, and there she goes had just gone into the top forty. You know, an amazing album, brilliant song, and we played the Boardwalk in Manchester to about ninety people. Really, and it's difficult, you know, to imagine now, but. That's how. That's kind of how bad it was for live music. Then. Yeah. That something as brilliant as that and as popular as that as well really wasn't. People weren't going to gigs, so I was out gigging with a lot of the poets instead. You know, that was kind of my gig. And mm. so, in your gig with the poets, and then it's like, yeah, you'd like Frank Skinner and Steve Coogan as well. They'd be they'd be at gigs. How does John the audience Thompson. vary when you've got comedians and poets? As opposed well, to it was. All right. I mean, it used to like it when it was. You know, as I say, on tour with somebody like Cooper Clark, I think it's the only kind of genius I've ever met. Uh, well, you think he's a genius. That's very interesting. You because are. because uh, w- words are incredibly easy to John in a way that um, the, the sentences are formed in his not even in his mind. They're I- they're in the world before he even thinks of them himself. I think it's just incredible. Mm. And Skinner, you support his, you support his Skinner. Well, Frank Frank Skinner used to have a cabaret club. It was a room above a pub in Birmingham. And uh, we used to, yeah, me and John Cooper Clark and Henry Normal people would go and do that gig. So that's how I first ever met Frank. But he, he was like the compere, yeah. That's how he kind of started. He, I think, I think he, I don't know if he was starting out as really as to be a comedian, Frank, for a while. I don't know. What was the kind of breakthrough for you? Because I remember reading an article that mentioned the Hold Steady and Wilco and uh, the Doves and Elbow and, 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 and groups like that that, that that worked for a really long time before they got mm. success. I mean, what, what, what finally 
broke I Am Clue? What, what finally got you into the... Well, we, we, um, we, I had a band together with a mate of mine called Brian Glancy, who is the seldom seen kid that Elbow write about in the, in the song <laughs> Seldom Seen Kid. Oh. And Brian kind of died a few years ago, but we were in this band and Brian got into all kinds of bother with drugs and stuff, and so... Is that uh, why he was seldom seen? What did that mean? Yeah, well, it, it may have been. You have to ask Guy that one. Yeah, That's interesting. <laughs> um, but... We formed so we that me, Pete, and Andy uh, just kind of got together in Pete's cellar. In fact, yeah, I had been doing it writing and performing for a long time, but I am Clute had only been together about six months before we got a, a contract with Wall of Sound to put our first LP out. In fact, we, our first LP we'd only we'd been together less than a year when we recorded that, and things actually went very quickly. As it went very slowly for twenty years, <laughs> <laughs> and then very quickly for six months. You know, yeah, so. I think uh, I stopped. Well, yeah, it was amazing. But because, well, I'd, I'd stopped writing in, in a certain way, and the song I'm going to play a song later. That's like, yeah, one of our first first single we put out ourselves. And I, I just somehow came. I stopped writing completely and performing for a while. I just was like, you know, treading water here. Mm. And when I came back and we sat down in Andy, with Andy and Pete, I had a new vein of song. Really, there was ghosts in it. I suppose because. By then, you know, I'd got a fair few ghosts knocking about. So you changed... Was it lyrically that you changed, or did you sound change the way that you were writing... Well, I, did, I don't know if I changed it myself. It, it just... I just seemed to hit a new vein. Uh, it was... it was it, What I did before was, I suppose, poetic, but this was in a, in a different way. Mm. And Guy Garvey's a huge supporter, isn't he? What, what is yeah. it that you find so attractive about your music? I noticed he's actually credited as, as playing wine glass and... Guacamole. Yeah, guacamole is. He's yeah, we, guacamole. How do you play guacamole? Well, we, <laughs> That's brilliant. Isn't we it? had a sound that we didn't. We couldn't remember where it come from because we 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 did it all the first LP on a cheap eight track in this church on the Isle of Mull. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, <laughs> of course. And uh, there was a lot of overdubs that we couldn't quite erase properly. So in, on the first LP, which I quite like, is you can hear our original tracks that we've put down that we play with. And then we thought oh, we don't like that. They raised it, but you can still hear the ghosts of all those tracks. Oh, it's on the headphones; you can really hear it. Brilliant. And some sounds that are knocking around in there, we're like, "Well, we'll keep that sound." In fact, we're going to exacerbate that sound. But we couldn't remember what it was that had done it in the first place because it was a distant thing. So yeah, we just called it guacamole. <laughs> which it's like guacamole. It was stuff hanging around. <laughs> I think we should. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. But it did to us. I think we should go, if, if you wanted, to the song. Because it, we, we, we've been recording podcasts here for a, 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 a day, and we're going to do another day of it tomorrow. But this is our first, our first inaugural one. Yeah. performance. One, yeah. And uh, just tell us, John, what's the song you're going to play? Well, um, about it. When, did, when did you write it? Well, I, did, I wrote it um, a few years before Clute started. When I was here, yeah, I was in Athens busking, and... Um, I, I, so we I, brought you back to busking again. So well, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I bust about twelve times in my life. Everyone wants to know. Um, and uh, I, I ended up at yeah at Athens Airport with about eight quid, trying to meet people to lend me a few more quid so that I could maybe get a standby flight. And it was a pretty disastrous trip. And I got, I managed, I smuggled myself into a hotel. <laughs> and was, you know, I know it sounds, you know, blah blah but yeah, I was, like, sleeping in laundry cupboards and things like that wow. until I was ousted. When was this? That would be, uh... uh what, what this right, OK. Uh, 19, <laughs> 1990, about. About 1992. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the rite of passage that you expect of most musicians. You want them to sleep yeah. in laundry, you don't want them to arrive... 
uh, directly out of public school. Enormously <laughs> <laughs> extensive contract with EMI Records. No, it does seem to be happening. He's awash with this very example. But no, play the song, that's fantastic. Well, I don't have a capo, so it's going to be an interesting version. Okay. Uh, it's called Twist. We got a reverb, guys? Twisted on destiny, fate and three wishes. We fucking we fight someone else does the dishes in the meantime your memory reminisces and twists is that blonde blue eyed boy your leech or your lover cause one of these days he'll be one or the other through one or two things you didn't Discover about me. Without the capo there, didn't know where that descent was, but actually <laughs> quite interesting. There's blood on your legs. I love you. There's blood on your legs. I love you. There's blood on your legs. I love you. Sweet saccharin of love and devotion Evoke the rich tapestry of all that devotion Forget all about that And fall in this ocean with me Twist, snap I love you, twist, snap I love you and twist Snap! I love you. Got it now. There's blood on your leg. Love you, there's blood on your legs. I love you, there's blood on your legs. I love Sorry, but is this a live broadcast? Can we re-record it later when I know the course? <laughs> no, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, I am Clute are on at, uh, at the uh, Word Marquee tonight at nine o'clock, I think it is. And no, six thirty-five. Six thirty-five. Sorry. <laughs> and we've got uh, they might be giants. We'll be here in about um, half an hour's time. So, could you please thank very much the great John Bramwell for coming today? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. The, the, this kind of music that you're about to play, you're going to play as a tune, um, is sometimes described as hokum music. Uh, it is. It's sort of 
one s- small portion of like the 30s blues was called hokum music. It was a particular type of uh, sound and thing. It was a real novelty, kind of pretty commercial, early sort of urban blues, I guess, in the 30s, uh, with a kind of usually a bit of a comedy sort of double-edged sort of sexual innuendo lyrics and a kind of jazzy sort of sound. Right. This guitar, show everybody this guitar. Maybe some people here have <coughs> never seen that kind of guitar. Is that a national steel? Uh, yeah, it is a national, yeah. So that was basically, that goes back to the 1920s and 30s, does it? Uh, yeah, I guess like the late 20s they must have started making them. They made them for the Hawaiian uh, people, I think, in the beginning. And, uh, you know, uh, in the 20s uh, they were playing something in a band. It was usually they played the banjo because it was loud. So, uh, you know, they made the arch top guitars with the F-holes on them. Uh, which is uh, not a real sort of full resonant sounding guitar, but it, uh, it cuts through a mix quite well. So there's always uh, trying to make the acoustic uh, instruments loud. To, because yeah, so be, they would play for dancing, wouldn't they? That's right, which and is horns and pianos and yeah, stuff going. Yeah. So uh, this was another one in that sort of line of right. trying to uh, be loud. So, uh, yeah. So you're going to play us a tune. What are you going to play us? <laughs> I might play a tune from my record, uh, King Hokum. This, uh, this is my first record that I made. And uh, I guess much more kind of in the old blues style than uh, maybe my next record that I did. Uh, it's a song called Handyman Blues. I sing into these? Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can edit this yeah, later. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> We normally polish these podcasts so that they're absolutely perfect. <coughs> <coughs> I had a job as a handyman once down the country. It wasn't a proper job where you have to do an interview or have qualifications. I'd actually been on the dole so long that they invented a position for me and uh, installed me in a small little primary school down the country where I was living. Uh, I used to spend my time out there with my headphones on, listening to all sorts of blues and things like that and uh, there's always uh, a lot of old female singers from the 20s singing songs about handyman and a few years after I'd done it I was uh, sitting around the house one night and I come up with this song here I'll have to uh, impersonate some of my band here because I'm used to having horns in it Excuse me, ma'am. I want to put my unemployment form, please. Now, hold on a minute, mister. Now, it says here you ain't worked in three years. That's right. But don't you think about the time you got yourself a job. But I'm looking for a job right now. You're looking for a job. praying that you ain't going to find one. You 
tell me what the last thing you done was. I used to get up in the morning. Pull away with the rain coming down. Country time. When I was a handyman, I cut down every tree in the yard. The reason being, I swang my axe so hard. And next Sunday, a week on Sunday, you're actually taking to the River Thames on, uh, on the SS Word, on the Word uh, River Cruise, with your Primitive Horn Orchestra, which... Uh, have you played a riverboat before? No, never played on one. This is a first, but it probably won't be the last. Uh, and you're appearing on the... Uh, on which stage? Uh, uh, we're down on the Sunrise stage, about 7-something, seven 7.30 okay. maybe. Thank you very much for coming along. Everybody, please say thank you. C.W. Stonecake.
If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month.